0: Thank you ladies, beautiful song, good morning, it is really a blessing to be back as we have been the last three months in South Africa and thank you for your prayers, there was much that needed to be done as we transitioned uh, to this side and God was so good and we could tell that people were praying. Uh, We got our container all packed up and so somewhere on the ocean tomorrow our container will be. And so you pray for that as our, stuff is, as our stuff is coming over. But it really is a blessing to be back. We have been praying for you regularly, praying for the church here, and excited about what God is doing in your lives. Uh, this morning, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open up to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we are going to start reading in verse 14, and we are going to read down to verse 29. It says this, and when he came to his disciples... He saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with him, or arguing with him. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the disciples, what question ye with them? And one of the multitudes answered and said, Master, I have brought unto you my son which hath a dumb spirit or a mute spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child, and oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything Have compassion on us. Help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And when Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he was come into the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we, or why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the songs that we have sang, praising who you are, your glorious name. And now, Father, we come to your word and once again realize. That human speech, human words can never accomplish spiritual and eternal things. So, Father, I ask, would your blessed spirit take your word, open our eyes, and show us Christ. We love you. We praise you. And Father, we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We sang a song as we began, a beautiful song that the choir had been teaching. And on one of those stanzas it says I will go where your glory is unknown. And as I was reflecting on that I thought what a beautiful way to start because that really is what our sermon is about and what God has called us to do. To go into a lost and dying world and to reveal the glory of Christ or the glorious gospel. It was probably close to 22 years ago now when I had begun to pastor in uh, the Upper Peninsula uh, to just a small little group of people. Uh, The church had gone through some splits. There was about 10 people. And I remember many times in those early weeks coming away from a service feeling somewhat frustrated that I did not have the ability to see their lives changed or transformed. It made me realize in those early years that I do not have the power, I do not have the ability or the experience to see true transformation in the life of a person. And when you come to this story in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are experiencing this same reality they don't have the ability or they are powerless to minister effective change in the life of the father and in the life of the son and jesus as he gets to the end of mark what he is doing at the end of mark especially since chapter 8 remember when when the disciples or when he asked the disciples who do men say that i am and the disciples come to Jesus and they say this, Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or the other prophet. And Jesus looked at them and said, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter boldly proclaims, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And from that moment on in the Gospel of Mark, Mark begins to turn his attention to, to the disciples, or Jesus begins to turn His attention to the disciples and begins to pour out into them because He knows He's about ready to leave. And it's part of this story where Jesus is going to teach His disciples a very valuable, valuable lesson. Now let's go ahead and I want you to look again at verse 14 just to get a little bit of the setting. It says, and when he came to his disciples. Now, what Mark is doing is he's connecting this to the previous story. Where did Jesus just come from? Jesus had been up into the mountain with three of his disciples, and do you remember what happens when he is there? Jesus is in the mountain, and there is the transfiguration. Basically, it's the unveiling where his glory shines forth. And the way Mark explains this is, Mark, there's really not a lot of words to do this. He says that his garments were so white that no launderer could make them that white. Have you ever tried to explain something that is just so beautiful and glorious to someone else, and you just can't find the words to do it? It's like trying to explain to a blind man what the color red looks like. Um, there is a drive from where we live in, in uh, South Africa, George, South Africa, going into Cape Town, and as you're going into Cape Town, you're actually going up into a mountain before you descend down into the city itself. And many times as you're driving in this mountain, the clouds are so thick that you can't see much in front of you. And so as you begin to go, the clouds are going over, but there's a point at time when you descend from the clouds and you literally have miles upon miles as you overlook the city of Cape Town and there is this beautiful scene of the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean and the, the mountains in the background and the city of Cape Town just nestled right there. And every time you see this, as you start going down, is it just takes your breath away. There's really no words that can describe it, but everyone wants to just sit back and just experience it. They want to taste it. That's what we talk about when we're talking about the glory of God. You can't really explain it, But when you see it, you experience it, you taste it, and you know what it is. That's what's happening with the disciples. They have just experienced the unveiling of who Jesus is, his splendor and his glory, and then the Father comes and the voice echoes and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What a wonderful experience. There in the mountain is the glory of God, but now they come down into the valley, and what do they see in the valley? The valley is a microcosm of the world around us, of sin, destruction, despair, and death. So in the mountains, they beheld the glory of God, but it's in the valley where ministry takes place. In such a setting that Jesus and his disciples, as they ascend down into the mountain, they come into the ruckus of a crowd, from the glories of Christ to a crowd arguing. And you will note as you read the story that Jesus has a conversation with three groups of people. And I want you to first of all notice, and this is just simply how I outlined this. The first one is he comes to the crowd that is skeptical. Look at verse 14. It says, and when he came to his disciples, a crowd about them, and the scribes questioning. That little word questioning really is the word disputing or arguing with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you arguing about? Now, who are the scribes? The scribes are considered the religion religious scholars of the day. They were the ones who would interpret the law and apply the law to the people. And so Jesus comes upon this group And this group of scribes with the crowds around them are disputing and arguing. And here's the question. What do you think that they're arguing about? I mean, the scribes throughout the book of Mark, they continually pop up. It's like all of a sudden Jesus is walking and out of a bush comes a scribe. And what do they continually argue with Jesus about? They continually argue with him about the things he is doing and about who he claims to be. For instance, when you get to the story of the paralytic, remember when they take down the paralytic and Jesus looks at him and says, Thy faith has what? Saved you. Forgiven you. And what are the scribes thinking? Well, that's blasphemous. Only God can forgive sins. Are they right? Yes. Who's Jesus? Later on in the story, when Jesus is sitting around tax collectors and sinners, the scribes think to themselves, you know, if Jesus really was who he was or who he claims to be, he would know who these people are, and he wouldn't be hanging with them. He would be going somewhere else if he really said who he was. Later on, when the disciples come to eat, there's a ceremonial cleaning that the Pharisees and the scribes would do and Jesus comes and doesn't do this ceremonial washing of hands and the scribes are thinking, listen, if you obeyed what Moses, the tradition of Moses said, you would have done this. And thus, what is their conclusion? Their conclusion is that Jesus is a fraud And to make the situation worse in this situation is the disciples have failed to do something. Thus, just giving the scribes more ammunition against them. Much hasn't changed today, has it? I mean, when you look at our world around us, we still live in a skeptical world of who christ is it was back in august when i was flying back from the philippines back here to the states i was sitting behind diagonally from a man who was reading a book and the title i don't remember the title but i remember it got my attention because it was something like the rationality of atheism i thought well that's an interesting book and so I kind of was looking over his shoulder, and, and I would look away every time you would look at me, but I was kind of looking over his shoulder and looking at the headings. And basically, what it was, it was an attack on Christianity. And the idea there is that atheism is rational, where Christianity is what? It's irrational. Now add to that the disciples' failure, and and there's just more ammunition that's going on. And so when Jesus comes down, he asks this question, what are you arguing about? And interesting, he doesn't get a direct answer. He actually gets an indirect answer. And this is where we're introduced to the second party, and this is one, a father who is searching, or a father who is seeking for the truth. Look at what happens. Look at verse 17. It says, And one of the multitudes answered and said, Master, I have brought unto you my son, which has a dumb spirit, a mute spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and he gnasheth with his teeth, he pineth away, and I spake to thy disciples that they should not, that they should cast him out, and they could not. So, so here's the condition of what's going on. A father steps up, and he says, I have a boy. This boy is under demonic possession. Now understand, any time the ultimate purpose of demonic possession is to distort and to destroy the image of God in man. That's always its purpose. And so here's a young boy who's under demonic possession. Now, I think there's a caution here. Two extremes when you talk about demonic possession. Now, the one extreme is where you see a demon or demon possession in everything. You know, so the person next to you could be demon-possessed. That's one extreme all the way to the other extreme where it doesn't happen at all. And both extremes are wrong. And here you have a case of a man whose son is under demonic possession and he brings him to the disciples and they couldn't. Look Look at verse 19 or verse 20. It says, Jesus says in 19, how long has this happened? In verse 20, and they said, and they brought unto him, excuse me, go back up to verse 18. He says, and wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and he gnasheth with his teeth. He pineth away, and he spake to his disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Verse 19, he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him and when he saw him straightway the spirit tear him and he fell on the ground and wobbled him and he asked his father how long is it ago since this came upon him and the father says of a child and so here's his child his only child and the Child has been going through this for a long period of time and so dangerous is it in verse 22 that oftentimes it cast him into the fire and it cast him into the waters to destroy him. And so the condition of this boy is under these demonic conditions and the man explains this. And you can imagine the fear and the terror of the father watching as his child goes through this the father has tried everything humanly possible to see his son cured and nothing has worked and i can just imagine this is where my imagination works i can imagine after an incident one day with a boy maybe the father has protected him again and a neighbor approaches him and says you know there might be someone who can help your son I've been hearing stories of a man who hails from Galilee, and they say when he speaks, he speaks with great authority. And not only does he speak with great authority, but they say he has the power to heal people. And and not only that, and you can imagine as as the neighbor looks at the father, they say he also has the power over demons. And they tremble when he speaks. And so the neighbor says, you know what? There's a rumor that he's coming to our part. A spark of hope ignites in this man. He says, you know what? Maybe he could help me. If anyone could help me, maybe he can. And so he grabs his son. He goes and he finds Jesus isn't there but his disciples and he brings, them to the, he brings his son to the disciples and he says to Jesus, they could do nothing. They were useless, powerless. And notice Jesus' response. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. What's the heart of the problem? The heart of the problem with all of these groups, the scribes, a little bit of the Father who maybe has lost some hope in the disciples and then in Jesus, but then also of the disciples themselves. The heart of the problem is Is there unbelief? The disciples were ineffective. And so Jesus has to do it. He looks around the crowd. He says, how long am I going to be with you? And I think especially for the disciples, Jesus is hinting, I'm going away and you're going to be here. How long am I going to be with you? I think the two most beautiful words. That Jesus says, bring him to me. Isn't that beautiful? I could just imagine as Jesus looks at the Father with compassion. It's not a stoic, bring him to me. It's a, bring him to me. The Father takes his Son. And he brings them to Jesus because Jesus is what? Jesus is one who's compassionate. The Father loves his Son, seeks out Jesus. Jesus in his compassion for the Father says, bring the Son. I think there's a powerful principle that when I was studying this that I just wrote down. The disciples' failures doesn't keep the man from coming to Christ, the disciples' failures doesn't keep the man from coming to Christ. I have talked with many people, and I'm sure you have too, who have been hurt or disillusioned by those who claim to be followers of Christ. And many times over the years, and, and our church in, in South Africa was filled with these people. You hear their stories and stories of hurts that I never I never wanted to go to church again. I usually say something like this, I'm so sorry that happened. I'm so sorry you went through that. But can I introduce you to someone who will never fail you? Can I introduce you to someone who is always faithful? Can I introduce you to someone who is always pure and righteous? Can I introduce you to someone who is compassionate? Can I introduce you to Jesus? He looks at the Father says, bring him to me. And as soon as the Father brings the Son to Jesus, at that exact moment, the powers of light and the powers of darkness clash. Verse 19 again. He says, O faithless generation, how long will I suffer you? Verse 20, And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And what is the plea of the Father? Look down at verse 22. Oftentimes, talking about this demon, Oftentimes, they cast him into the fire and they cast him into the waters to destroy him. And here's the plea of the Father. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Here's the Father. The request is help us. But what does he rest in? He rests in the compassion of of Jesus Christ. The hope that is rooted in this man is in Jesus' compassion. This is exactly where our hope needs to be. I mean, think of the compassion of Christ. Think of his love. Is his love took him where? To the what? To the cross. And there on the cross, he took the judgment of sin to atone for sins. And when we come to Christ and cast our hope at the compassion or on the compassion of Christ and his finished work, what do we find? We find his compassion and his love. And so the man says, if if you can, and Jesus comes back and says, well, if you. And and I, I would love to have a picture screen. Because this is where we really can't tell how Jesus' expression... But, but I think Jesus, because it's a play on words, I think Jesus probably with a little bit of, of a twinkle in his eye and says, if, if. you got the if in the wrong place. It is not a matter of my ability. That's not the question. It's a matter of if you will humble yourself and believe in me. That's it. And so he says, if if you can believe that all things are possible to him that believes. And how does the man respond when Jesus says that? This next phrase is probably one of my favorite, Favorite phrases in all the Bible. Verse 23, Jesus said, If thou can believe, all things are possible to him that believe. The father then straightway, the father of the child, cries out. And with tears, what does he say? Lord, I believe, but what? Help thou mine unbelief. And what I love about the Scriptures is it reveals the depths of the human hearts and it reveals the battles. I mean, this is the spiritual journey of our lives, at least of my life. Many times, Lord, I believe, but but help mine unbelief. And I, I like what one author said in this. He says, True faith, is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on the sufficiency of Christ. He says, I do believe, help thou mine unbelief. And at that moment, He cast everything at Christ. And what does Jesus do? Jesus looks down. Verse 25, When Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee. Come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him and he was one dead insomuch that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted up, and he arose. Jesus speaks a word, cast out the demon, and when it seems as if the boy is dead, he reaches down, takes his hand, and brings life back in, out of death. And this is what Jesus does, isn't it? He takes people's lives who are on the road to destruction and he does what only he can do. He enters into that person's life and he stands them up. That's what Jesus does. That's who he is. So he comes to a skeptical crowd. He comes to a seeking father. But now he comes to a third group that of his disciples who were powerless. Look at verse 28. It says, And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? They're asking the question, Why could we not do this? Now, folks, remember that at the heart of the problem, Back in verse 19 is what? It's their lack of faith or their unbelief. Uh, Matthew's account really brings this out. Matthew's account is when the disciples come to Jesus and say, Why could we not do this? Jesus says, Because of your unbelief. And so at the heart of the issue is this unbelief. And they say, why could we not do this? And notice what Jesus says. He says in verse 29, he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing. And and what he's telling his disciples is you did not understand the nature of the battle that you were going against and folks, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because our time is done, but when we're dealing in the realm of spiritual things, it is way beyond us. We can do nothing. We can have all of our programs. We can say the right words. We can memorize the right stuff. But at the end of the day, if that's all it is, we don't have the ability to do this. Who has to do it? Only one person, only God can do it. So, what does he say? This kind can come out by nothing but by what? But by prayer. Now, what is the connection between faith and prayer? Prayer is faith turned toward God prayer is faith looking to the face of God and re- looking to receive from his hands and folks this really is the spiritual life I can't get saved I can't save myself and so I run to Christ in prayer I can't save others and I can't transform them so where do I go I run to the throne room of grace, and I pray. And so the ultimate exercise of faith in God and faith in His Word really comes in prayer. Now, why then do we not pray? Because if I were to ask you how many of you believe that prayer is powerful and God calls us to pray and we can't do it unless we pray, how many of us would raise our hand? Probably all of us, right? But then I come away from that and I come and I look at my life and I say, but Lee, how much time do you spend in prayer? Because the reality is many times as I don't understand what I'm dealing with and I think, you know what, I I think I have the ability to do this. You know, I, I think I have the ability. I used to tell our preacher boys, You know, we think we have the ability to preach. So we get up there with our power, we get up there with our strength, and we open the Bible and we go, um, 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 good morning, um. Because really we don't have the ability. God is the one who has to do it. And so, why could we not do this? Jesus says, because you didn't understand what you're dealing with. You you thought that you could do it yourself and you didn't acknowledge the simple fact that you can't, but God can. And so in prayer, we humbly bow ourselves in faith, surrendering to God for him to do his purposes. And folks, when I come to this story, there is a great encouragement and a great rebuke. Here's the encouragement. Encouragement is that when I realize that I can't do it, he comes along and he says, yeah, but I can. On the other side, the warning is this, is when I think I can do it, beware lest I fall because I will realize very quickly that I can't. I mean, it's kind of like the story of Balaam and the donkey, right? You remember that story? I mean, I'm encouraged all the time by that. When I come to God, I say, God, you know, I just can't do it. And God says, hey, Lee, I used a donkey. I can use you. But it's also a rebuke or a warning because when I start thinking, hey, God, look at what you can do with me, God says, yeah, I also used a donkey. I mean, it's God that does it. Now, folks, isn't this beautiful? In ministry, as I'm dealing with people all the time, Parents who come to me crying over their children who aren't saved. Saying, Pastor, what do I do? What do I do? And I say, we can pray. We can pray. Because you can't, but God can. I come to people who are ministering to loved ones, and they say, I just can't convince them. What do I do? Well, you can't, but you can pray. Because you can't, but God can. And folks, if we're going to see God change lives, effective, transforming, changing lives, what do we have to be a people of? We have to be a people of prayer. And you want a beautiful illustration of this? Just go to the book of Acts. What did the disciples learn? They learned to pray. And in 30 years, God turned that world upside down. Let's you and I be people of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this truth. Thank you, Father, for Jesus the only one who can save, the only one who can transform lives. And Father, by chance, maybe there's one here this morning who has never by faith come to you. Lord, I pray, would you just open up the heart of that person to help them to see you, and to see the gospel. And then, Father, what a great encouragement and a great reminder for all of us. Help us, Lord, to be people of prayer, coming to you, beholding your glory in prayer, and then going out and speaking that glory to a lost and dying world. We love you. We praise you. Father, we just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.